Can you guys hear me? Is that coming through? All right, good. Thank you, Abra Bhattacharji, uh, for that reading. It's, uh, Fiona was commenting that when you hear the Bible read, it is like poetry in motion. And that was uh, poetry in motion. So thank you for that. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Graham, and I am one of the pastors here at City Reach. Um, I'd like to begin this morning by talking about a four-letter unmentionable word, especially on the weekend. And that word is work. Now, I don't know what word you were thinking about, but it's the word work. Uh, And attached to the word work is another four-letter word, boss. Uh, So I'd like to begin with a question. Uh, How many of you have ever experienced having a bad boss? Can we see? Okay. Oh, my goodness, there's a lot of you. <laughs> okay. Uh, how many of you have experienced uh, having a good boss, right? Yeah, okay, that's great. That's nice and encouraging. A um, little bit deeper, how many of you have ever considered leaving a job or have left a job because of the boss? Oh, if your boss is in the room, don't put your hand up, okay? But... Yeah. Okay, you guys are not alone. In 2019, they did a Gallup poll of over 1 million workers in the US. And they found that leaving a bad boss or a manager was the number one reason why workers quit. The number one reason. And 75% of those said their boss was purely to blame, not the job itself. So the saying goes... People don't quit a job, they quit a boss. Uh, Or maybe you felt like this. You're tired, you're frustrated, you're unhappy, you're demotivated, your interaction with your boss leaves you cold, Your your boss is intrusive, he's controlling, he's picky or petty, and you're desperately wondering how you can professionally deal with a bad boss. Well, all of that means leadership matters. Leadership matters. It has a huge effect on business. Whether businesses succeed or fail often depends on the leadership. It has a huge effect on our personal, emotional well-being. It has an effect on our identity and our happiness. Leadership really matters. And in the church, leadership matters a huge deal. How we as Christians lead in the church, how we lead in our place of work, how we lead in our family matters a huge deal. Now, you might be thinking, well, uh, I'm not in a leadership position in any of those things you mentioned. You're not off the hook, right? Because at the very least, you are called to lead yourself. And as followers of Jesus, we are all called to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of God. So, are you ready? Leadership 101 begins here. Now, as Abra said, we are looking at the book of Thessalonians. Uh, It's a letter. We're looking at the first one, 1 Thessalonians, and Paul is writing to this church. Now, Paul founded the church in Thessalonica. He preached the gospel to them, but then he had to leave the city. Now, what often happened is that the Jews would come in after the church had been founded, and they would attack the message Paul preached. They would attack the gospel. Uh, And if that didn't work, then they would change their strategy, and they would attack 
the messenger. They would attack Paul. And this stuff happens in our workplaces today. If you can't undermine the message, then you undermine the messenger. So for me, in a previous job I had in Hong Kong, uh, the boss I had wasn't particularly well-liked or respected. But one day, he got up and addressed the staff with a new initiative. And it was a big staff. There was about 60 of us. And the plan he had was actually a really good one, and it was really needed. So the staff couldn't really find fault with his plan, so they went after the boss. But of course, not to his face, but behind his back. And they were starting saying things like, well, he's really only doing it to make himself look good. Uh, he's wanting a promotion. That's why he's doing it. And this is exactly what was being said about Paul. As you've seen in the passages we, we just read today, reading between the lines, you can see this horrible slander that was directed at him, right? They were putting these thoughts and doubts in the minds of the members of the church to doubt the very man who had founded the church, who had preached the gospel to them and set them free. So some of the things they were saying was, well, this guy, he's incompetent, guys. Really, Paul's a little bit of a klutz. Like wherever he goes, he, he just leaves a mess. He wants to come help you, but he actually leaves a mess. And he's a little bit like this, if we can show the picture uh, at the back there. Right, so this is kind of what we think Paul's like. You know, he, he comes in, but he doesn't leave a job. He just leaves a mess. He's an ineffective servant of the Lord, right? When he's gone, we actually find out that we have more problems than we had when he came. Another accusation was that, man, Paul's a coward. He ran away from you guys. Now, we know from the Bible that Paul actually left because he didn't want to bring trouble on uh, the believers. They said he's a trickster, that he's just full of deceit. He's only out there to exploit you. He's an opportunist. He's only interested in it for the money, for the cash. He's greedy, guys. He's a lazy man. He, he, like he's only into preaching because he can't do a full day's work. Now, all these things, it makes a pretty... Oh, you can put down the picture, thanks, now. Um, all these things, it's a pretty horrible list. Now, it is true that when we criticize others, it's actually revealing something about ourselves. When we go on criticizing, it reveals that we judge others by ourselves. When we say, oh, they're doing it for their own glory, that's often because that's true of us. When we say, oh, they're just doing it for the money, it's often because that's why we're doing it. Now, Paul, it's absolutely brilliant in this chapter. It's like he stepped into a courtroom and he defends his, himself, right? He defends his case. He says, I'm going to call two witnesses to account. I'm going to call God as my witness, and I'm going to call you, Thessalonians, as my second witness. Uh, and he conducts this with a brilliant strategy, right? Paul, if he wasn't such an amazing preacher, would have been a great lawyer. Because some of the charges he denies, flat out, he says, no, that's wrong. He has the evidence. Other charges he argues about, but all of them he faces. He faces and as we go through this passage, you see Paul is able to defend every one of these charges. 
But more than that, they are charges that every one of us should be able to defend as well. So the first one is his effectiveness. In verse 1, it says this, You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not in vain. Uh, The NIV finishes it this way. It says, not without results. Right? Paul's saying, he's not, I'm not incompetent, guys. You know, Thessalonians, you are my witnesses. You saw what happened there. When the church was founded, it wasn't with no effect. Something happened. You knew what I was doing. I didn't come in and mess up the situation. Actually, when I left, the ministry that was left behind was a church that was rich in faith, hope, and love. That is an effective ministry. That is what churches should be. Then he moves on and he deals with his boldness. In verse 2, it says this, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Paul's saying, guys, you're calling me a coward? You think I was afraid and that's why I left? Do you know why I came to you in the first place? It was because in in Philippi, I had been beaten and whipped. I had been thrown in jail. I'd been thrown in prison, thrown in stocks. I had been shamefully treated. And yet the first thing I did when I left Philippi, I came to Thessalonica and I preached the gospel. The very thing that I'd done that got me in trouble in Philippi, I had the courage to come and do it again. That is not the sign of cowardice. That is courage. Think about it for us, right? If this, uh, if this auditorium had to be surrounded and the doors burst open and a whole bunch of thugs came in and beat us and whipped us and mocked us, how many of us would come back next Sunday? And yet this was Paul. He was beaten, whipped for the sake of the gospel, but he gets back and he says, I'm going to just carry on preaching. Guys, I'm not a coward. I'm not a coward. He says, guys, you want to accuse me of deceit? This is what he says in verses 3 and 4. He says, for our appeal does not spring from error or impunity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God, to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul just simply says, guys, did you see my life? It was utterly simple, utterly simple, right? We didn't come as thieves and crooks. We didn't come with deceitful motives. It was just, it was was really simple. We came with one motive, And one motive only, because God entrusted us with the gospel. And that's what we do. Our only thing is to share the gospel. We share with you what has been given to us. You know, somebody once said that a preacher is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That's the only motive that would stand up in God's sight, right, for sharing the gospel. And Paul says, I appeal to you guys. You guys witnessed what we did. You guys saw how God tested us, how God approved us. He approved us, right? He said, we're acceptable to pass on this gospel. He entrusted us with this message 
this treasure to pass on to you. He wouldn't have done that if he hadn't approved of us. And then they say, no, 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 Paul, really, you're just, you're just saying these things. You're just trying to flatter us. Paul says, okay, let's look at that. Let's talk about that one. Verse 5, he says, no, we never, we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Um, have any of you read Pilgrim's Progress? I see, show of hands. All right, there's about five of you that have been incredibly blessed. The rest of you, you've got to read that book. It's incredible. Right, so Pilgrim's Progress was written by a guy called John Bunyan in 1667 while he was in prison. So written a long time ago, and it was written as an allegory of the Christian life. And the main character in the book is this guy called Christian, and he goes on a journey and he meets different people along the way. And I think one of the most profound moments in Pilgrim's Progress is that the devil keeps coming to Pilgrim in a different guise, right? So Pilgrim never recognizes him initially. And one of the most subtle of all is that the devil appears to him as the flatterer, right? Flattery is one of the devil's favorite weapons. If you can see the next slide, right? It's a little bit like this. Really, you are most marvelous, right? It appeals to our hearts. There's a story of Charles Spurgeon, who was a very famous preacher. As he came out of the pulpit, someone said to him, oh, that was a magnificent sermon. And he replied, yes, the devil told me so just as I left the pulpit. Paul says, we didn't come to flatter you. We didn't, right? You know that. Guys, I have to say that it's a huge temptation to flatter. Uh, it's a temptation for me to stand up before you guys today, tell you all amazing you are, get you to laugh, and walk out feeling really good. But Paul says, no, we didn't do that. We didn't come to butter you up. We came to tell you the truth. We came to tell you that you were sinners, that you needed a saviour. And that you need to walk worthy of the calling of God by his strength. But I have to say, guys, there is a difference between praise and flattery. Now, as a South African coming into Australian culture, one of the things that I did find, praise is probably not really such a strong point here, right? Uh, but there is a difference between play, praise and flattery, right? Praise, the intention behind praise is to encourage. The intention behind flattery is to deceive, right? Flattery really is like buttering up. If we're going to use a modern term, it's sucking up. Uh, and flattery really, the motive is based on one that benefits the flatterer. I'm doing this because I want benefit. I want you to give me something. Whereas when you praise, praise is there to benefit the receiver. right? When you, when you praise someone, you encourage them. You help them recognize the talents that they've been given. You raise their self-esteem. You restore hope and you give direction. Praise helps the receiver. Whereas flattery is all about the giver, right? I want to give you flattery so I can get something. And finally, Paul defends his conduct. He goes, guys, you want to talk about the way that I lived amongst you? Right. 
In verse 9 and 10, it says, You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our behavior towards you believers. He says, look at my hard work, guys. You remember night and day we labored with our hands. You know, in in Greece at that time, uh, it was very much they looked down on you if you did work that involved your hands. If you did any manual labor, they kind of looked down on you. It wasn't as, you know, socially as high standard as someone who worked with with their heads. And sadly, many people still feel the same way today. And if you do feel that way, I'd just like to remind you that Jesus himself spent 18 years working with his hands, giving dignity to manual labor. And Paul said, guys, far from coming to you guys with this accusation that I'm just there to take up the collection, that I want to exploit you. No, no. Didn't you see? Night and day we worked. I I didn't want to take anything from you. I didn't want you to give you any reason to say that I was preaching the gospel because I wanted to get something from you. No, I would, I would come before you, I would preach and teach all day, and then I would go home at night and I would work. And Paul was a tent maker, right? And it wasn't in the days where you, like nice tents all made by machineries. It was probably goat skin and you had to work really hard to put that needle in and out of the goat skin, work it together. And Paul did that day and night. He worked, it was a tough job. So Paul deals with what, we were, what they were not. Guys, we weren't any of these things. If you hear stuff like that, that's not what we were. Remember that God is our witness, that you are our witness, that you saw what happened. He says, but this is what we were. This is what we were. And it's interesting because he doesn't appeal to a list of his attributes. I'm this amazing. I did this. He doesn't appeal to his giftings. He does something very different, and he appeals to the depth of relationship. In verse 7, this is what he says. He says, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. I don't know if you've ever watched a mother with her baby. It's the most beautiful, gentle, tender, caring thing. Right? Moms will comfort their babies. They will make sure that they're fed. They will clothe them. They'll make sure that they're growing. They're healthy. And above all, they will spend hours and hours and hours with their babies. Right? And as the moms out there will know, I can see Jo with her little baby now. There's a perfect illustration right there. Beautiful, tender moment, cuddling and caring for their children. And moms will know that many of those hours you spend with your children are in the middle of the night or in the early hours of the morning, right? Uh, An author, Jodie Picot, said it like this. She said, 24-7, once you sign on to be a mother, that's the only shift they offer, right? It's full time, all the time. Uh, And Paul said, guys, did you see how I cared for you? Did you see how I was gentle with you? I made sure that you were spiritually fed. I made sure that you were spiritually healthy, that you were growing. 
Paul's saying, I wasn't the kind of person, I wasn't the kind of evangelist who just arrived in town, got a response, and then moved on. No, I stayed. I cared for you. I wanted to see you grow. So I, I nursed you. I nursed you as you became children. And then in verses 11 and 12, Paul talks about himself being a father to them. He says, For you know, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Um, my son, who's 10, he, he plays cricket. And I get to go along to all the practices and the matches and it's really fascinating to watch dads at, a, at cricket practice. You get all sorts, right? You get the kind of dad who kind of hangs back, he pulls out his phone, he's not really watching. You get those that kind of watch from a distance. And then you get those dads that are just like right up there. They're on the boundary and they're shouting, come on, my boy. They're clapping. There's all this encouragement. You can do it. Great shot. Um, yeah, put that sandpaper away. Yeah, we don't need that. Oh, sorry. Is that too soon? Too soon. All right. But anyway, they, there's all this encouragement that's coming out of them, right? To encourage literally means to put courage into someone, to put courage into them. So your words, your example, the way you live your life gives them the courage to do it. Paul said, we encouraged you. We put courage into you. This isn't standing from a distance and watching from far away. No, this is being up close. It's walking with you. So what did Paul encourage them to do? What, what courage did he put into them? He says this. He says, walk in a manner worthy of God. He says, you followers of Jesus in Thessalonica, I'm like a father to all of you, right? Notice he says, we exhort each one of you, each one of you, every single one of you is important. Every single one of you matters. Every step you take in life, every decision you make, every place you go, you do it in such a way that shines a light on who God is. The way you conduct your life, the way you walk through life, people will look and go, who are you following? And it will shine a light on him. It will shine a light on his holiness. We are called to be holy. But it will also shine a light on his, the fact that he is your heavenly Father, full of mercy and grace. He's a Father who calls you into His kingdom. He calls you. Uh, my wife says, my, my son walks just like me, right? You can, people can tell which family he belongs to just by his walk. So poor kid, right? Um, but Paul is saying, I really want you to get this. He's saying, you guys are part of the family now, right? You recognize Jesus as king, the king who laid down his life for you. And now you're invited into his kingdom. But you're not just a subject in the kingdom. No, you are an adopted son or daughter. 
You bear the family name. So when you walk, when you live your lives one step after the other, what you are doing is showing which family you belong to. So remember how you walk. You are showing what family you belong to. As you seek forgiveness, you are demonstrating what family you belong to. As you forgive others, you are showing what family you belong to. As you fail and as you make mistakes and how you deal with that, it shows what family you belong to. Guys, all that, all that, the way we walk, it it should reflect Jesus. It reflects Jesus as King. Gentle, graceful, forgiving. Paul says, guys, this is why we lead like we do. This is like we're, we're like a mother and a father. You know, moms and dads, they're always on duty. It's not like it's five o'clock and they knock off and they just clock out. They're always on duty. It's like Jody Picot said, it's a 24-7 shift. But if you ask moms and dads, why do you do it? They'll say, because we love our kids. We love our kids. That's why we would do it. Guys, leadership that Paul's talking about here, it's all about relationships, serving out of love. You know why we do that? It's because we have a king who serves and leads us in exactly the same way. Now, Paul says this in verse 8. He says, We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Paul says, you know what? We were prepared to share the greatest treasure that we have. The greatest treasure that we have is the gospel. Do you know that that is the greatest treasure that you have to give away? It's not money. It's not possessions, although those things are helpful, they're useful, they're a blessing to those who receive it. It is not the greatest treasure that you have to give away. Paul says, we shared this gospel with you. It was ours to give away and we did it. We shared it with you because we cared about you. Now, I don't know about you, but this challenges me incredibly. Do I care enough about those around me, about my family, about my friends, my colleagues, even strangers, even those who dislike me? Do I care enough? to share the treasure of the gospel with them? Do I care? Do I care enough? Do I even realize that I have this treasure to give away? I think a question we need to ask ourselves is, why is it that people lead from false motives? Why do people lead from a place of greed? Why do you... People lead in such a way to get glory and praise from others. Why do people flatter? They do it when they believe they don't have enough. 
When we believe that we don't have enough money, we don't have enough security, we will resort to greed. When we believe that we don't have enough status, we will flatter others, we will seek glory from others. When we believe that we don't have enough of a reputation, we need to puff ourselves up and we need to seek glory from others. But guys, the gospel teaches us. The gospel teaches us that in Christ, you have everything. You have everything, right? He provides the contentment with what you have. He says your sons, your adopted sons and daughters into the kingdom. The Bible even tells us he sings over us. Somebody's allowed to say hallelujah because this is good, right? This is really good. This is the king over us. He says, guys, when we realize that all, all that we need is in him, all that we have is in him. We don't need to lead out of a place of perceived need. We don't need the glory and praise of others. We don't need to be greedy because we realize we've got it all in him. Paul says when we realize this, we're just able to give. When we realize that actually we've been given so much, it's not out of need. It's out of where it's abundance and here we are to share it. He says, guys, you've become very dear to us, very dear. We genuinely care about you. You're not just a number. You're not just a face on a Sunday. No, you are very dear to us. On October the 17th, 1995, so 25 years ago, uh, Kari and Brielle Jackson were born in the USA, Massachusetts, and they were born 12 weeks premature. So babies were in a critical condition, and they placed them in separate incubators. Uh, and Kari, she only weighed about one kg, and she was making good progress. She was gaining weight. But her little sister, uh, Brielle, she had problems breathing, and she had heart rate problems, and she was gaining very little weight, and her oxygen blood levels were very low. And then on November 12th, when the girls were about three weeks old, little Brielle went into critical condition. A tiny little body turned this bluish gray, and she was gasping for air, and her heart rate was soaring, and her parents watched just terrified that their little girl might die. But there was a nurse in duty. Her name was Gail Kasperian. And she went to the parents and she said, look, we've tried everything. We've tried medicine. We've tried everything we know. How. There's one last thing I'd like to try. But I need your permission because it's really risky. It's really risky. I want to put the girls together. Now, there's this risk of cross-infection I have to tell you, it'll be dangerous. And her parents said, do it, do it, put them together. And so as the nurse put them in the same incubator, little Brielle snuggled up to Kari, and she began to calm down. And within minutes, her blood oxygen readings improved. And as she dozed, Kari wraps her left arm around her, her little sister, and that's when they took this photo. Guys, you are, that's awesome, guys. You're allowed to go, ooh, ah, oh, that's beautiful, right? This became known as the rescuing hug. 
In medical terms, this became known as the rescuing hug. It changed the way they practice when they have twins. They put them together now because of this moment in the U.S. Soon after they put them together, she put her arm around her. Brielle's heart rate stabilized. Her temperature rose to normal, and she just began improving all the time because of this rescuing hug. And this is them today. 25 years old, this is what they look like. Two beautiful twins close together. Guys, this is what Paul's talking about here. He says, like, when we lead, we give our very selves. We give our very selves for the sake of our brothers and our sisters. We lead in such a way that we are continually giving a rescue hug. We're constantly risking it, but we care and we put our arms around and we will walk with you. We will care of you. We do this for the sake of others. Guys, this isn't 12 steps to becoming a better leader. In Christ, it's about relationships. It's about thinking, how do I give myself? How do I have a genuine concern and care about others? Because that's exactly, exactly how Jesus relates to us. He gives himself for us. Right? Jesus gave us the ultimate rescue hug, right? The ultimate rescue hug. He didn't come to us just when we were sick. He came to us when we were dead in our sins. And he didn't come just to share his life. He came to give us his very life. He died that we might live. I have to be honest with you this morning. I found this passage this week incredibly convicting. Because if I'm honest and I examine my heart and I defend myself, I know that I can't, right? I know that there have been times that when I've led, I've led seeking the praise of men. I've used flattery. And I've, I've had to ask the Lord to, to deal with me, to forgive me. Because I want to be, be the kind of leader that, that leads where out of a genuine love and concern for others, prepared to give them a rescuing hug when it's incredibly inconvenient, there to encourage and charge and exhort, to spur you on to, to good works. So I don't know where you are this morning, where you are in your life, with those moments where you've been tempted to seek the glory of men or to just be greedy. Bring that to the Lord this morning. Bring that to Him. And He will. You know, if anything, this passage says, guys, let's be encouraged. Let's have the courage to lead like this. Let's be reminded that actually all we need is in Christ already. That we don't need to come to this place where we, we seek others' approval and we're greedy because actually all we need is in Christ already. And guys, very practically, very practically, this week, let's be on the lookout for those who need a rescuing hug. COVID-safe rescuing hug, right? That's what it should be this week. COVID-safe rescuing hug. Because that was what we do. That's what we do. Guys, and, and most of all, let us respond with thanksgiving. 
Because we're only able to love because he first loved us. Will you stand with me? I'd love to pray with you. And then we're going to respond in worship. Father God, we, we come before you as your children. We come before you just thankful and humble that you love us. Lord, that you gave yourself for us. Lord, I pray, forgive me where I've stumbled and fallen and think, thought that I, I don't have enough, Lord God, that I don't have enough in you. Lord, I pray that you remind all of us again that we have all that we need in Christ, that Jesus, you are enough. Lord, I pray that as your people, Lord God, we would be prepared to share our lives, to share the gospel, to risk it, Lord God, because of our love and concern for one another. And Lord, above all, we thank you for the love that you had for us.